Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. This legacy uh, of, of slavery and lynching and segregation, our history of racial injustice. As I got to college and I started studying history, I was really interested in sort of figuring out or learning more about Jamaican history and couldn't really figure out how to access Jamaican history. And I had a really growing investment in the lives of women workers who had left sex work to become jewelry makers. Slavery and its legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Tom Thurston. Today we have a special episode with James Scott. James is the Sterling Professor of Political Science and Professor of Anthropology at Yale and is director of the Agrarian Studies Program. He has also written many books, including The Art of Not Being Governed, An Anarchist History of Upland Southeast Asia, and Seeing Like a State, How Certain Schemes to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed, among others. We're joining James at Yale's Lindsay Chittenden Hall as he presents on a chapter in his upcoming book, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. Here is part one of two. Let's listen in as James begins. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, the book is um, a detour and maybe a mistake because I'm not an archeologist, nor am I an historian of classical civilization. So. I am pretty much out of my depth. And it began, as I say, as a, as a detour. I was asked to give a couple of lectures and I wanted to postpone them because I just finished a book and I was enjoying that moment that we all have after a book when you're doing free reading um, in which you pick up a book and have the book take you where it's going rather than what you want from it. So I was enjoying that kind of reading and um, didn't want, actually, to think of devising new lectures. And so I thought what would be the easiest thing to do is I team teach a course in the comparative study of agrarian societies with a couple of colleagues and have for the last 25 years. And uh, I have usually given the first lectures on the domestication of plants and animals and the earliest states. Uh, and I thought, well, I know those lectures are out of date, maybe I could update those lectures and give two creditable lectures uh, if I devoted three or four months to reading the new archaeology and the new history. And I was so astonished by how wrong and stupid my lectures had been that my actual lectures just kind of registered my astonishment uh, at what I didn't know. And so I think of this book as having as being to the earliest agrarian states what Charles Mann's book, 1491, uh, is for the pre-Columbian world. That is to say, uh, Charles Mann, in the best sense of the word, is a high-end journalist, and he's reporting on all the things he thinks we probably didn't know about the pre-Columbian uh, period, and I am reporting on all the things I bet that many of you didn't know, unless you're specialists, about the very earliest states and the very earliest uh, domestications. So there's nothing, it's completely derivative, and although I think I have an original take on it, um, it's uh, 
a kind of synthetic work in which uh, I am using what I think to be the best knowledge that has been accumulated in the last 20 years. The larger question is how we came quite recently in our species history to live in great heaps of people, domesticated plants, domesticated animals, and governed by the strange political units that we now take for granted, namely the state. Um, it's worth reflecting for a moment that Homo sapiens has been around for about 200,000 years. We spread out of Africa only about 50,000 years ago. The first evidence of sedentary communities appear maybe 11,000 years ago. It's disputed. Um, and the first evidence of both domesticated plants and animals appear at roughly the same time. But what's interesting is that there is no evidence of villages living largely by domesticated agriculture on fixed fields until roughly 7,000 years ago. So that is a 4,000-year gap. Uh, it's not a trivial gap. It needs to be explained, I think. Consider what it does to our usual narrative of civilization. The usual story school children absorb, and I absorbed as well, is that the domestication of plants in particular allowed us to settle down in one place, practice agriculture, make villages and towns, and ultimately create civilizations. There are two things wrong uh, with this narrative, I think. The first is that it assumes, without ever saying so, that we couldn't wait to settle down and to become sedentary. Uh, it assumes that we were saying to ourselves, oh my God, we've been wandering around for 190,000 years, now we can finally stay in one place, as if this is the kind of condition, the teleological end toward which uh, we were um, uh, aiming. When in fact, we know historically that the effort to forcibly sedentarize mobile people who have a mobile foraging subsistence uh, has almost always resulted in war and flight. Uh, and so this is an assumption that we can't take for granted. Um, the second problem with this is that it has this huge 4,000 year gap when domesticated, the techniques of domesticated agriculture were known but were not practiced. And in fact, if you go to Anatolia even today, you can find stands of wild wheat in which you can harvest wild wheat for three weeks with a stone flint and get enough to feed a family for, um, uh, for a year. Uh, and so that even before the domestication of plants, our Neolithic ancestors had all of the things like um, threshing baskets, uh, 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 sickles uh, and so on, all the techniques that were used later in grain civilizations, and they were using them in order to harvest wild grains. Uh, my book tries to, um, if you like, clarify this puzzle of sedentarization and the puzzle of this 4,000 year gap. The state is a puzzle too, and I'm not gonna get much into that right today. Um, if civilization is an achievement of the state, and if early civilization means sedentism, farming, irrigation, and towns, then there's something radically wrong with the historical order because all of these achievements, sedentism, farming, irrigation, and towns were in place long before 
anything like a state pops into view in the Mesopotamian alluvium, and those are the first states. So there's a 4,000 year gap between knowledge of domesticated plants and their extensive use. There's another 2,000 year gap between sedentism, farming, and irrigation evidence, and the existence of anything that we might want to call uh, a state in the Mesopotamian alluvium. The reason I'm studying Mesopotamia uh, is because that's where the evidence is, um, and that's largely because they wrote uh, in cuneiform on tablets that survive, whereas the Egyptians, damn them, wrote on papyrus that um, disintegrates easily and doesn't leave much of a record uh, behind. And so I mostly, and they were the earliest, uh, Eridu, uh, Uruk, and Or are the places that I'm examining. Um, at the time the first states appear, 6,000 years ago roughly, uh, they are a rounding error in the world's population and tiny spots on a map dominated by non-state peoples. They appear only in the last 3% of our history uh, on the planet. And as for the actually being governed, that is to say, if you ask yourself for the presence of the state in people's lives, ask yourself at what date most of the world's population might have known tax collection, routine tax collection, as a part of their life. Not plunder and tribute, but routine tax collection. My guess is that until roughly 1600, even in um, uh, Europe and the old Roman Empire, most of the world's population had been able to avoid tax collectors or move out of the way if they wanted to until that date. Um, the earliest states only occur in a particular ecology, as near as I can tell. That is, they require alluvial or loose soils, that is to say, nutritious soils moved by wind or in most cases by flood, the flood pulse of a river, a river valley, a, a floodplain of a river valley, and in the presence of perennial water and navigable uh, waterways usually a river or sometimes a calm coast. These are the places and the only places, I think, under early conditions of transportation where you can cram the maximum number of people and subsistence crops into the smallest possible area. And of course, irrigated wet rice is the absolute best for that, but wheat and barley will do and maize will do too. I call this the grain manpower module. And I call these early places of sedentism and small towns um, uh, the half in jest, but I think uh, correctly, late Neolithic multi-species resettlement camps. The, the reason one of the reasons why people avoided agriculture for such a long time is because plow agriculture in particular involved a tremendous amount of drudgery. So that as long as there are uh, fairly abundant uh, open landscapes available, the kind of subsistence that minimizes the return per unit of labor is hunting and gathering and foraging. And in some cases, like the Pacific Northwest, 
this is extremely uh, abundant. And for that reason, the two earliest forms of agriculture, both still practiced in the world, are flood retreat agriculture and uh, swiddening agriculture. And they mimic one another. That is to say, uh, in, let's say, the Nile River Valley, after the flood pulse of the Nile, when the water, the, the, the flood does two things. It destroys all the competing vegetation. It lays down a silt of nutritious soil that's kind of finely graded as if in a perfectly harrowed field. And then as the water retreats back into the channel, you just have to follow behind and broadcast seed, and it's a perfectly prepared agricultural field. In Swiddening, the fire does the work of the flood. Uh, it destroys all the competing vegetation. The ash then provides the fertilizer that you need, and all you need is a little dibble stick in order to plant. The inconvenience of Swiddening or slash and burn cultivation is that you have to move the field every three or four or five years uh, because you don't have the annual flood pulse. Those are the only forms of agriculture that can compete in terms of saving labor um, with hunting and gathering and foraging in a favorable uh, environment. Um, Marshall Solons in Stone Age Economics uh, shows us, uh, calls uh, hunters and gatherers and foragers the original affluent society. And he notes that they spend less than 50% of their time on subsistence activities and the rest in what might be called by an anthropologist cultural elaboration. Uh, that is resting, leisure, uh, art, dance, uh, decoration, fornication, so on. Um, the Esther Bosrup, the great Danish economist, showed how plow agriculture was avoided until population pressure or a property system forced people into it. Um, the reasons why people resorted without coercion into plow agriculture is a very disputed uh, issue and one that I am unable to solve. There are a number of theories has to do, having to do with the disappearance of large game, increase of population so that you had to get more out of a small uh, uh, area of land, and also climate change. And I'm not fit to arbitrate between these um, different uh, um, causes. But when conditions allow, we can see many historical occasions on people in which people move back to the less intensive form of subsistence. So that after the Black Plague, when a third to a half of the European population died, uh, the people who happened to survive, a huge proportion of them moved back to slash and burn agriculture because it was the easiest form of agriculture to practice now that there was so much land and so few people. In Southeast Asia, many of the populations, that uh, Austronesian populations that came to Southeast Asia came from the, uh, what is now known as Taiwan, uh, where they were horticulturalists, they were planters. And when they got to the rainforests of Southeast Asia, they found the uh, environment so abundant that they saw no reason to uh, go to the bother of planting crops uh, themselves and became foragers and so on. My, my anthropological hero is Pierre Clastre uh, in Latin America who showed that the Yanomamo, the Siriono, and the Guarani who were seen to be Stone Age survivals 
were actually people who knew how to plant and had moved into foraging in order to escape the forced labor and disease that they associated with the Spanish uh, uh, reducciones. Uh, I want to move for the, to the background conditions for why I should care about slavery and uh, forms of forced labor. Um, this man, manpower grain module, and it's, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, that it's, it's worth pondering the fact that half of the, roughly half of the world's calories are now consumed by only three grains, wheat, maize, and rice. Uh, someone said, we've all become parrots. Uh, and this is the result, in part, of the agrarian module that I am talking about. Many people call this module the domus, and by domus I mean uh, a hearth, a dwelling, the garden and fields and perhaps orchards and livestock that, uh, that are combined in this place. And what's important and interesting to reflect on is that this is an entirely new artific artificial ecological setting in the world. It never existed before. The very earliest sedentary communities in the Mesopotamian alluvium are 10 to 20 to 30 times uh, uh, more uh, populated in a small space uh, than anything that had preceded them. And when we think about this domus as a completely new and artificial ecological setting, we must not just think of the human beings and the domesticated uh, animals and the domesticated crops that are crammed into this, but we must think of this module as being a magnet for lots and lots of uninvited critters, uh, mice, rats, sparrows, pigeons, uh, uh, and all of the things that find it nice to eat at the domus, right? Things to eat at the domus, and the things that feed on the things that eat in the domus. So the fleas and lice and so on that are attached to all the animals. And those are, of course, are the vectors for a tremendous number of uh, diseases as well. So it, what I want to emphasize is how unique this particular environment is that is the product of the first agrarian societies, and that goes on to dominate the life of state ecologies uh, until, I suppose, fossil fuels become uh, important, or at least water power becomes important much later um, in the day. So the domus is a kind of feedlot, uh, not just for humans, but it's a feedlot for lots of other uh, critters as well. The result of this was, I think, that this was a perfect epidemiological storm. Um, the, almost all of the infectious diseases from which mankind suffered, and which were the most fatal diseases for a long, long time, uh, are the result of the diseases of crowding, and they are almost all zoonotic diseases that move between domesticated animals and human beings, because this was the first if you like, um, permanent settlement of lots of domesticated animals together with lots of human beings, right, in a uh, crowded area. Uh, the, 
These are density-dependent diseases, or acute community infections, as they're known to public health um, officials these days. Uh, and they, the source of most of them, as I said, are, uh, is that they move between species, between our domesticated animals uh, and us. Now, it's clear that being a homo sapiens and um, giving this talk, um, I'm interested in the diseases that domesticated animals gave us. If I were a particularly precocious goat giving this lecture, it would be a quite different story in which I would be talking about how domestication wasn't so great for us either. So um, keep in mind that this is an anthropocentric lecture. Um, but rubella, pertussis, diphtheria, cholera, smallpox, mumps, measles, influenza, chickenpox, and perhaps malaria and tuberculosis are for the most part entirely new diseases. It's not as if they were rare and became more common in the Domus and in these new crowded situations. It is that they came into being. Uh, and uh, all of these diseases, unless they have a non-human reservoir, depend absolutely on a concentration of hosts. And epidemiologists can work out the concentrations that are needed on the basis of the mode of transmission the degree of infectivity and the period of infectiveness. Um, those that are spread by coughing and sneezing and particles, air particles, uh, are likely to be more infectious uh, than others, for example. So this has been worked out in some detail for measles. You need at least 100,000, a population of 100,000, for measles to remain endemic in the population. Each of these diseases needs a certain number of new susceptibles in order to be able to uh, remain in a particular population. One of the examples that epidemiologists give again and again is the Faroe Islands. Um, in 1781, a Dutch sailor arrived with measles, and everybody in the Faroe Islands got measles for the first time. Um, and 60 years later, another Danish sailor came uh, with measles, and everybody under 60 got measles. Uh, these epidemics, it gives you lifetime immunity, so the people who survive are then immune forever. Uh, and 30 years later, I don't know whether this is a Danish sailor again, but someone brought uh, measles, and everybody under 30 got measles, and everybody over 30 uh, was uh, immune. Uh, the point is that one can work out the epidemiology of each of these diseases and the degree to which a disease can become endemic or is likely to reinfect from outside smaller populations. One of the reasons why the New World population was so exceptionally healthy is that they came across the Bering Strait in numbers too small to carry any of these infected uh, diseases uh, that are the results of, uh, of crowding. Uh, so it turns out that agropastoralism was bad for your health, as we know. Uh, um, that's one reason why the early state was so extremely fragile and prone to collapse. But it's crucial to remember that the concentration of hosts and epidemiology of disease applies not just to Homo sapiens, but to the domesticated animals and to the crops themselves. That is to say, this was an unprecedented crowding of people and of domesticated animals and of crops. And so the logic of disease among animals 
is just the same as it is as the logic of disease among human beings in terms of epidemics. And therefore, a state was fragile not only because of human diseases that uh, may have uh, either dispersed the population or killed most of the population, but it was uh, also common for uh, most of the domestic animals uh, to die from uh, an epidemic disease and for crop diseases because you have nearly identical genetic individuals in a field crowded together in a way that never happened before uh, in the world and therefore they were prone to crop diseases in the same way. So the crowding effect works for the plant material, it works for the domesticated animals, and it works for the homo sapiens as well. I want to finish up um, the, uh, and I'll do this <coughs> very briefly. I have the argument that, that uh, states require grains. No grain, no states. That's a little, uh, not quite true, but it's close enough as a point of departure. Um, that, uh, and you can ask yourself, um, all of the early states depended on either millet in the Yellow River, wheat or barley, uh, or rice or maize. So why are there no legumes or tubers or other starch plants? Why are there no lentil states? Why are there no chickpea states? Why are there no yam states? Why are there no cassava states? Potato states, breadfruit states, taro states, peanut states. I was gonna say banana states. There are banana republics, but that doesn't count. Um, so uh, they have enough concentrated calories. They're just as nutritious. Uh, some require actually less labor. They can also be stored rather well. Why these grains? Why are they so important to almost every uh, state? They have unique advantages that no other um, of the possibilities I enumerated can match. They it's no news to you, they grow above ground. That's important. Um, and they almost all have determinate ripening. That is to say, they ripen at the same time. Uh, if the army wants to destroy your wheat field, it just has to come when it's ripe and burn it. Or better yet, if you've already threshed uh, the wheat and put it in the granary, they take your, uh, they take your wheat, uh, they take all from the granary, and you have to, uh, to move on. Um, uh, it can be therefore confiscated from the granary. It's a store of, uh, it has high value per unit weight and volume. It can be shipped considerable distances compared to like, potatoes or yams or cassava, for example. Uh, it can be used easily as rations in terms of dividing. It stores rather well. Uh, and that's why these grains, these cereal grains in particular, uh, grass grains, if you like, um, get to be the sort of basis of, um, of states. Compare that at the other extreme with cassava. You can plant cassava almost anywhere. It grows with, a, with very little uh, labor. Uh, it ripens in about a year, but it can be safely left in the ground uh, for two or three years and still be perfectly good to eat. That's why it's called in Latin, some parts of Latin America, farina de guerra, uh, because gorillas will plant it uh, as a uh, a kind of root crop and tuber crop that they can go back to uh, when they need it. So cassava is my sort of 
nominee for champion escape crop, uh, which is unfriendly to states, uh, as is, of course, swiddening and uh, mobile peoples and pastoralism uh, and so on. But as a crop, um, states have this affinity for cereal grains uh, as well. Um, I, it's worth pointing out that when Frederick the Great realized that a city, Philipsburg, that they were besieging had held out for a long time, and the reason was that they were one among the first potato planters in Germany, uh, and they could go back after the armies had finished their business and dig up the evening's dinner uh, and stay in the same place, whereas people who were planting wheat could be dispersed uh, easily by confiscating their granaries. Um, the, uh, I, I could explain why chickpeas and lentils that seem plausible are not plausible, but um, uh, it has to do with the ripening right along rather than this determinate uh, growth. So the interesting thing about the early states is they, they seem to end pretty much where grain ends, where gr the alluvium, the, the su suitable ecological setting for grain growing stops. And this gets to be, in lots of early civilizations, also the um, a key distinction between the barbarians and the civilized. You know, the Romans eat uh, wheat uh, and barley, and the Gauls eat meat and uh, dairy products. And it's seen as a distinction, uh, not just in diet, but it's seen as a distinction in level of civilization. Um, <clears throat> the fragility of the early state, for lots of reasons that are uh, obvious, that some of which have to do with ecological uh, patterns of destroying their watershed, of the salinization of uh, soil because of over-irrigation, and especially of the epidemic diseases that I'm talking about, plus sometimes crushing taxes, civil war, wars of succession. The striking thing about the earliest states in Mesopotamian alluvium, and there are many of these states, is that they blink on and off uh, um, with great frequency, and we often don't know quite why they disappear. Uh, and uh, the, as near as I can tell, all of these states had a surpassing manpower problem. That is to say, because of taxes and corvée and so on, they were leaking manpower anyway. Because of the drudgery of agriculture, if there was a suitable frontier, people under crushing taxation would move toward the frontier. If there was an epidemic, people would, of course, run away from the epidemic uh, if they couldn't be successfully quarantined and so on. So the state had a manpower problem. Uh, it, the, the effort of keeping all of these people that are the source of the power of a state and their production in one constrained small place <coughs> was a problem because, first of all, the diet of the this agrarian module was such that you had high rates of mortality. No European cities reproduced themselves from their urban population until the mid-19th century, by and large. Uh, they grew by sucking in more people from the countryside, just as an epidemiological phenomenon. Um, and you had other reasons, of course, uh, as I mentioned, for people leaving this grain core over time. So the grain core had to be replenished on a regular basis. Uh, and as near as I can tell, and that's where 
the little chapter on captivity uh, and slavery in Mesopotamia uh, comes in. Mesopotamian slavery was a consequence of wars of capture. That is to say, the wars conducted in the alluvium were very rarely wars uh, for territory. They were wars for population. And so the success of a military campaign was the number of people you got back, and sometimes actually the skills and abilities of these people as well, not just sort of raw numbers uh, entirely. Uh, and <clears throat> the, it's often said that Mesopotamia didn't depend on slavery in the same way that Rome and Greece uh, depended on slavery. Um, but as near as we can tell, there were 9,000 slaves, uh, and I'll um, modify that slightly in a moment, um, in Uruk uh, in 4000 BC. The total population of Uruk was about 45,000, right? So we're talking about 20% of the population. And the term for slave in cuneiform is a combination of the mark for mountains and woman. Uh, and it's clear that the slaves were women taken in campaigns in the mountains who were then settled in the alluvium and for the most part worked in textile workshops which were the major export of Uruk uh, to, the, uh, to the hinterland. It's, um, it's clear also that, that these workshops had a kind of Victorian workhouse aspect to them as well in which widows and orphans and uh, people in debt, debt slavery and so on. Uh, but that was a rather small proportion uh, compared to the people who were taken as captives uh, of war. Um, since I want to have a, a chance to both answer and respond to your criticisms and, and comments, I, I, I won't talk much about uh, Greek slavery, uh, which was on a much larger scale, um, except that the, I think it's like 60 to 70 percent of the Athenian population were unfree, um, and, and by preference, the Greeks, when they captured towns, were likely to take the women and children because they want, they wanted to use their reproductive lives. Uh, that is to say, if we think of domestication as control over reproduction, control over the reproduction of plants, control over the reproduction of livestock, and control over the reproduction of women, uh, the preference for taking women captives makes perfectly good sense. Why, just as the Berbers said that raiding is our agriculture, why would you want to plant a crop for a year when you can come when it's all in the granary and take it? Uh, why should you go to the bother of raising uh, women to reproductive age when you can take them at reproductive age uh, as captives and use their reproductive services in order to increase the manpower of the uh, of the state you're a part of. Um, the, the forms of unfree labor uh, are not just, of course, wars of capture. There are uh, other forms that in early civilizations that, that look like Sparta, in which it appears that a military, um, a military um, 
colony has imposed itself on an existing agrarian community and uh, then insists on having tribute for, from it. That is the, the relation of the helots uh, to the sort of Spartan uh, elite. And then uh, somewhat later in the Levant, forced resettlement seems, mass forced resettlement seems to be extremely common. That is, as rather than taking slaves, if you like, individually and in small groups from small towns and so on, whole communities are captured and are moved as an entire agrarian society nearer to the sort of core of a state and made to produce grain and so on. Uh, that obviously has problems in terms of rebellion and flight uh, that are somewhat different than other forms uh, of bondage. And throughout all of these societies, there is usually a pattern of debt bondage uh, as well. Um, the slaves that are less visible in these societies but are extremely important, especially in the, um, those societies that have a kind of structure of monumental building and become rich civilizations are essentially chain gang uh, work, digging canals, the, all the slaves uh, in the Athenian uh, silver mines uh, and in the quarries uh, and in logging and so on. So there's, the interesting thing about that slave population is it has to work where the resources, where the timber is, where the, uh, like Potosi, where the, well, this, where the silver is, uh, where the rock quarries are. And so they're less visible on a daily basis uh, from the society, but they're absolutely crucial to uh, an important part of their, uh, their wealth. Um, I think, uh, oh, I'll, st I'll stop there. Uh, except for, there are huge differences, I think, in societies in the degree to which people taken as slaves are integrated and assimilated into the society. Um, and in Malay society, which is another, not an ancient example that I'm familiar with, someone, essentially the basic Malay trade was the slave trade and the important cargo of the Malays were slaves. And slaves would be integrated into Malay society very quickly so that in 20 years, someone taken as a slave might be organizing slaving expeditions of his own uh, and would have married a local woman in the second generation, uh, although people might remember that they had a slave origin. Uh, it would not be very stigmatizing. These remain slave societies because even though they assimilated very quickly, as did Native American societies, captives, um, they were continually taking people in at the bottom so that there remained a slave society for this whole period. So the rate of assimilation was not incompatible with the fact that they remained a slave society so long as there was a constant um, uh, collection and assembling of unfree labor uh, at the bottom of the social uh, stratification. Uh, let me stop there. Thank you, David. Uh, Jim, thank you for doing this. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for sharing the show. Slavery and its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition 
a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.